We invite you to get some communion elements because in just a little bit we'll be partaking of communion. And talking about communion, we're looking at that not only by partaking of it, but we're looking at communion uh, through the songs that we're singing this evening as well as our chapter in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11 and the Apostle Paul talks about um, communion and Pastor Kerry will be unpacking that for us in a little bit. And so just want to remind you just to be uh, focused on remembering what God did, did, has done for us, giving him thanks this evening through these songs and praising him and giving him honor. Let's stand together and worship him.
A love so true. 
And power. 
for dying in our place. You are the name that is above every name and we declare that you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings this evening. All the glory, the honor and power are yours forever and ever. Amen. May be seated. Amen. You would find your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our journey through the Bible. And as the Lord would have it, we'll be uh, taking a look at the end of this narrative about how Paul addresses the practice of the Lord's Supper in the, in the church at Corinth. A couple of, of things that I'm super excited about, and Tom's going to do some announcements at the end, but. Um, just in anticipation of tomorrow, uh, I, I, again, I just want to reiterate so it doesn't get lost. We Tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer. Yeah, this room is going to be open from 8 in the morning till 8 at night. Uh, we have Pastor Matt from Scappoose Foursquare that's going to lead a call to prayer at 9. And then Pastor Tom from here is going to lead a call to prayer at noon. And then uh, Pastor Randy from Warren Baptist is going to lead a call to prayer at 3. And then I'm going to lead to a, a call of prayer at 6. And so all of those times, if you're able to come at any one of those times or all of those times, we really want to be able to pray. And, and if you've been following the news at all, um, do we need to pray? Absolutely we need to pray. It's our shield. It's our stronghold. It's, it's where we stand. 
So I encourage you to make a special effort uh, tomorrow to come down and spend some time in prayer with that. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at Paul's letter as he continues to write to the church in Corinth. This is the second letter that he's written. We don't have the first copy of the letter, but he's, he's writing a letter in response to some of the questions and concerns that people in Corinth were having. Corinth had become a very carnal church. They had, they had started well, but then they kind of slid off and got derailed with some of the things of the world and, and the carnality that was going on, and he's addressing some of these issues. And so, as he's working through these corrective words, he's trying to encourage the church to get turned around. And he's turning the corner now, having dealt with some of the issues, and he's going to start dealing with the areas concerning worship, specifically the corporate worship, as they get together. Some of it has to do, as we're going to take a look at tonight, um, and, and i got to tell you, forewarn you, spoiler alert, some tough passages tonight with head coverings and such, and the corporate gathering, and then also the gathering for... Um, the Lord's Supper, as they would gather, a little correctiveness is, is necessary with that. And then we'll be getting into the gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and how they were practicing the spirituals when they were gathered together within this. One of the things that is super important that we understand is that worship is significant to God. The angels worship at the throne of God. When you take a look at Revelation, that is something that the whole church Old Testament, New Testament, everybody will be gathered before the throne of God in worship. And it's a matter of reverence. It's a matter of authority. It's a matter of understanding that when we gather together, we gather together for prayer. And we gather together for prophecy. Prophecy being the foretelling of God's word as it's laid out and being revealed. And within these days, even as tonight we're going to gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper, they got off track on it. And it's really easy in our worship services to get off track, to kind of lose focus. And so tonight, maybe we're going to have a little bit of refocusing for ourselves and dealing with head coverings. And, you know, should women have their head covered or should they not? It's been, again, a difficult set of passages. And in some churches and, and faith system, it's been controversial within that. So dealing with it. And so I got to think, well, what is it? what does it all come down to? Well, one of the things that it comes down to is a self-centeredness and also a, center, a, a synergy of pride, especially when they get into the spiritual gifts, the whole idea of tongues and healings and some of these things that were going on. And these, are, these tend to be hot topics, uh, even within the church today. So we're going to decipher and work through some of those things uh, beginning next week as we get into 12. But I want to just reflect on 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul's introduction to this letter, he says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, and that word is telos, of the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is writing this letter because the church had become very divided, and the people had become very divisive within the context of the church community. Now, I know the church community today is not divided over doctrine and theology, is it? Do we think that this could be relevant for us today? Yes, for sure we can, and we do. The danger with the church at Corinth 
is the same as today. People were emphasizing their individual rights and freedoms at the cost of loving others. They were looking out for, for their own pride and their own sake at the cost of unity and they became divided. And so Paul has to write to these guys to square them up. The priority of the church is to love the other. That's what we're here for. To be able to love the other. We love the other that are pre-saved so we can love them into the kingdom. We love the other that is saved so that we can have fellowship with one another. And so that's the priority within the body of Christ. The problem is pride and entitlement becomes a poison. And when you become prideful or in feeling entitled, it becomes a poison to the body. And what happens is then the body becomes sick. And within that, this illness or even a cancer would come in. And I can tell you this, pride and entitlement will quench the Holy Spirit in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Holy Spirit will he'll just go, when you get done throwing your fit, then I'll help you out. But till then, I'm going to sit over here on the sideline until you all get it figured out. Kind of like working with a bunch of junior hires, right? You just get it, get it right. So as Paul is writing to this, he's really writing to them a solution. And, and to remove this doubt, he wants to navigate with the church these difficulties. And one of the things that we last left off last week in 11.1 is how Paul ended this. If you ever get lost spiritually and you need to find your bearings, do what 11.1 says. Paul says this, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. If you get lost spiritually and you're trying to figure out, okay... I'm lost. Find somebody that is doing it right and follow them. Find somebody that is walking with the Lord that, that exemplifies Jesus and follow them. Because sometimes we need that, that physical example when we get lost, when we get out of sorts. And that's why the fellowship of the church is so important to get together. To be able to follow somebody, the example of somebody. And I can tell you this, you're all going to be following somebody, aren't you? Everybody follows somebody. You're either following somebody with a biblical worldview, or you're following somebody with a secular worldview. It's going to be one of the two. If you have a biblical worldview, where is that worldview going to take you? Closer to God, right? You're going to have a good theological platform to live your life up. If you're following somebody that has a secular worldview, where's that going to lead you? Devastation, destruction, division, self-centeredness. And we have both of those worldviews even within the church today. Find people that have a solid biblical theological worldview and follow them. And stay away from the people that are following a secular worldview because I can tell you this, those that are following a secular worldview, well, who's behind the secular worldview? Satan, right? And he's a deceiver and he's drawing them away. So he wants, as Paul writes, the church to glorify God in everything they do. And so as we work through this, some of this might hit home, some of this is going to answer some questions, and some of this is going to, you're going to go, wow, that's, I, I never realized that that would be potentially a danger within this. So let's take a look at the first 16 verses here, and there's two sections. 
that these two issues that Paul deals with, the unity within the church and the worship and, and the head covering piece, and then the, uh, the issues dealing with the Lord's Supper. So he starts out in verse 2, he says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. And every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has, uh, has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, we'll stop there for a minute, and and you're going, Carrie, boy, that sure is chauvinistic, isn't it? At first glance, when you look at this, you go, wow, that's pretty backwards. That, that means that women are just owned by men and that they have, no, they have no real value within this. That is not Paul's intention, nor is it what the passages say. We have to dig in a little bit deeper. And I can tell you that there has been great controversy over these Verses, and you say, well, Carrie, what does it mean for me today? Does that mean that when I come to church, I've got to have my head covered? No. But there is, a, there is an implicit message within this. We first start with verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Paul is moving into these difficult passages, and I'm going to teach you a little bit about studying how to study the Scripture. You've got to study the Scripture and accept the Scripture from a little, literal, grammatical, historical, and contextual point of view. You've got to ask those questions. What does the passages say? What does the passages say in the original language? In other words, what do they mean? What do they mean in the context of the hearers? So as Paul's writing this, he's actually writing it to people. What would they have understood when they read this letter that was sent to them? And in the context, which is the bigger picture, the overall correction, what does that mean? And so as, as Paul is working through this, we have to look at it from those, those views. The literal, the grammatical, the historical, and contextual to understand what he's saying. The first thing that was happening that we've got to understand contextually is that the church of Corinth was receiving Paul's teachings, but then they were reinterpreting them contextually to a pagan culture. Now, question. Is there a problem when you take God's Word and then you make it relevant from a pagan view? Sure. You can't run the Word of God through a pagan filter and hope that you're going to end up with something that is correct. Can you? No, because it's, it's an ungodly filter. 
And so the church at Corinth is coming out of a, uh, a world of idolatry. And so they're bringing this Greco-Roman culture and they're trying to take these traditions that Paul gave to them. And he says, I, I praise you that you're remembering me. At least you're still listening to me. And I thank you that you're keeping some of the traditions or the teachings that are there. The problem is when the church starts reinterpreting Paul's teachings and overemphasizing some things and then creating some things that are inappropriate, then we've got a problem. We have to get back to basics. So what is the basics? What is the basics for corporate worship? When we gather together in a place. The other thing you've got to understand is the hearers of this were not meeting in large structures. They were meeting in homes. So the church were in small home groups. Maybe 20, 25 people. If you were a rich person, you could house more than your church might be there. So when it says Corinth, it isn't one church. It's many home churches that are all there. And there's a diversity of that. And the church is, again, fairly young. But how should the believers behave in worship? That's what he's going to get to. And when we think about worship, what is our priority in worship? Is it for us? Is worship for us? When you come here, is it for you? No. That's consumerism. When you come here, this is not for you. This is for God. We gather in this place to give glory to God. We gather in this place to encourage one another. If you're coming here for you, then you're already off track. Now, the fact of the matter is, is if you're glorifying God, then your vertical is going to be right, and that's going to be good. And then the other fact is, if every person in the body of Christ is here for the other person, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be loved on. And so that is the purpose of the church when they gather for worship. Proskuneo, to lay yourself out, to be in a place where you're conditioned and saying, God, it's all for you, not for me. It is for you. To bring glory unto you, God. To respect the authority of God over them. And so within this, there's, this church was trying to make the culture of worship relevant for them. There's a danger there. Worship should not be made relevant for you. Worship is the expression of the heart of surrendering all to God. And so within this, we've got to look at the, the timeless theological truths As we go through this, don't get hung up on the head covering piece. But look at what he's saying. Because he's talking about men and women gathering together and they were not focused on their worship. And so he says, I praise you because you're remembering me. And I praise you because you're keeping the teachings and their traditions. They were called out of idolatry into something that was new and fresh. Question. Are traditions good? Yeah. Traditions are good. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a tradition. Is that good? Sure. It's good. Can traditions be bad? When are traditions bad? When they're either off theologically or the tradition is worshipped more than God. When you worship a tradition more than you worship God, now you have a worship of a ritual, right? And it's empty. 
but traditions are good. Paul would write to the church of Thessalonica this in Second Thessalonians 2.15. He says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter for you. So within this, we understand that in the faith community, the tradition of worship is purposed to gather the body together. We get together on Sabbath, our Sabbath being Sunday, right? Or for some of you, Sabbath might be tonight. It might be Wednesday. And if you do that as tradition, that is good because the tradition of worship gathering, whether it's on Sunday or Wednesday in that corporate setting, is good because it brings you together. So a tradition that brings you together for the purpose of worshiping God is good. But if the tradition of gathering together for the purpose of worshiping self, is that good? No, that's not good. And so they were keeping certain traditions. And again, it was the traditions that was carrying them forward. And so we've got to understand that he says, it's good that you're keeping the traditions. Note, as I deliver them to you, because Paul discipled them. And so what was the tradition that was a problem? Well, it was the tradition of understanding in the gathering, understanding the order and, and structure that should be reflected in what was called the headship of the church. Look at verses 3 through 9. It says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man's the head of the woman. God's the head of Christ. God is a God of order. If you take a look at creation, is creation made in order? We look at all of creation. Is there order in, in creation? In the beginning, when God looked at, at everything, it was full of chaos. It was formless and void. But God said, let there be. And what did he start doing? Bringing order. Let there be light, right? Let there be firmament. Let there be animal. And even if in the creation account, there's an order and a structure by which God had created. And he brought order within that. And so God establishes order and structure, and all order and structure in worship begins with who? God. In the corporate worship, our worship should be ordered and structured in worshiping God first within this. And within this order and structure, we see that this structure, he says, in the, it, that God is the head of Christ is the head of every man, right? And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So there is a dependency, or shall we say a direction. So we have the, the divine God, triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, right? God the Father sends God the Son to the earth, right? God the Son now is the Messiah who then guides who? The man. Holds the man responsible. Leader of his home. Leader of worship. Where? In his home. And who is he leading? His wife. Right? So we've got to understand that it is not that the woman is less than, but it is the structure that God has set up by which there is order in the relationship, especially for the relationship of worship within this. It does not mean that the woman is inferior by any shape of the imagination. 
Is Jesus inferior to God the Father? No. But He is subordinate in His ministry on earth. Right? We know this based on John 17, where He said, Father, I've done everything You want me to do. In the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. Right? Equal in nature, subordinate in ministry. And brings about that structure that is in there. And so the problem is within the church is when the behavior of worship gets out of whack and it starts changing the divine structure that God had set up and things get out of order. And when things are out of order, they're chaos, right? If you don't believe me, hang out with a bunch of junior hires for a little bit. Or I got a classroom downstairs with three and four-year-olds. You want to see chaos? There you go. Then you come, come to Pastor Kerry's office, I'll give him jelly beans, then we'll really see chaos. But to understand this, we've got to understand what headship is. And so there's some verses I want to share with you. I don't expect you to turn to them. They'll show up, but there are quite a few. And it really defines this construct of headship. In Ephesians 2, or chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And he put all things, note, in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Who's the he and the his? Jesus. And who is subordinate? The church. In Ephesians 4.15, But speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And then in Colossians 1.18, it says, He also is the head of the body of the church, and He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Do you see the structure that God is setting up? Where Christ is the head. And that word head is talking about the authority, position of authority. Colossians 2.10 And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. You say, that's great, but what about the man? Ephesians 5.23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. So we have this thing called hupotasso, and it's it's it's... A sub, it, it's equal in nature, but subordinate in position or for structure. So when we come to this condition of worship, Paul is having to correct a behavior that had gone sideways in the church of Corinth. And you say, well, Kerry, well, why did he have to do this? Well, the problem was, is they had gotten out of bounds. Now, before you get really sideways and start throwing things at me, <laughs> Paul does something that's very interesting in verse 8. He goes back to the very creation to say, well, it's been like this since the beginning. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For man did not originate from woman, but what? Woman from man. Woman from man. God created man first out of the dust of the earth and breathed, ruach, into him and gave him life. But then he looked at man and he goes, oh, you're a knucklehead and you need help. It makes him go to sleep, takes rib out of his side, creates woman, right? From man. And so we see this, this helpmate, this one that is, that is equitable, but also assistant. Man was given responsibility and dominion over these things, and the woman was to be his helpmate, equal in nature, but to help him. And so even in the creative order, we see this structure that is subordinate within this position. And again, don't get me wrong. This is not creating what's called a theology of gender bias. 
God is not in Scripture saying that the woman is less than. And in our world today, there's a lot of people that want to scream that. That is not what he's saying. He's saying this is the proper order or structure for responsibility, for worship within these things. And again, so you say, well, Carrie, why did all this happen? Apparently, what was going on in the church of Corinth, as these women were getting saved and the church was gathering in these places, the wives were having conversations with their husbands and they were disrupting the worship services. As they were talking about Scripture and as they were working things through, there was a disruption. You say, well, Carrie, how do I know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Verses 34 to 35 says this. The women are to keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the loss also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. You say, wow, that's pretty harsh. There's, there are some things that are going on that we've got to understand that were cultural within this. Paul is not saying women cannot talk in church. That is not what he's saying. So men, do not pull this verse out and beat your wives up with. Honey, Pastor Kerry said you've got to be silent. The Bible says you've got to be silent and don't speak. That is not what Pastor Kerry is saying, nor is it what Scripture is saying. What was going on within this, and we're going to get it in depth later when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, and, and women, by the way, were allowed to speak. We know that there were prophetesses that would pray, that would speak forth the word of God in the public assembly. We know there were women that were great leaders. So that's not what it's talking about. But the, what was happening was these wives were subverting and having side dialogue with their husbands about the teachings and the things that were going on that were disrupting the services in such a way that it was creating some chaos that was in there. To the point of, of debates and discussions. To contention. Or the women were getting to a place, and remember, if you're in a home of 25 people, and it's not structured like this, like lecture style, right? Think about a home fellowship and you've got a couple of strong-willed women that have a lot to talk about, Right? Can it go sideways really quick? For sure. And so that's the context of what's going on. So we can't read our Western ideas into this. We've got to understand what was going on. And so the, the teaching was being disrupted because of the debate or the misunderstanding. Honey, what did he say? Can you explain that to me? I really don't agree with that. And so we started, they started having it. He says, no, you can't do this. Save it for home. Notice the, the admonition is what? Wives, talk to your who? Husbands. Husbands, be that spiritual leader that has that answer for your wife. And have fellowship together and work out the teachings and the scriptures at home, not during the public worship services, even to the extent that some of the women were challenging their husband publicly. What would it be like if you were in a home fellowship and you saw a wife look over to her husband and say, you know what, that was stupid. What you just said was dumb. You're so spiritually ignorant. 
Would that be cool? No. So Paul's like, stop, you can't do that. And he's telling him to, to not um, be insubordinate or not to seek to embarrass your husbands, but to honor them. Apparently it was a problem in Corinth. And so he's correcting them. So in context, what he's talking about is let me set down this structure. And so we understand what this is all about. Now, women, again, were to participate in worship. And they were able to do so. But what he does is he takes something that was normal for the culture at that time, and that was women to wear a head covering. They were to to wear this head covering, or in context, it was often known as the veil of marriage. It meant that you were married. It meant that you were there. You were covered. You have have a covering. Your husband is your covering, and it was symbolized by that, that head covering. And so by wearing it and wearing that head covering, what you're saying is, I am willingly submitting myself and humbly submitting myself to the authority of my husband while we're gathered in a public place. One of the other problems that was happening in Corinth was the women were dropping their head coverings and saying, I answer to no man. And so what they were doing is they were subverting that that structure and they were going uncovered. As Paul would say, uncovered, and they were dishonoring their husband. Now, is the message really about head coverings? No, it's about attitude and worship. It's about a husband and wife that are coming together in corporate worship setting. And the problem was the the women that were getting saved were dishonoring the men in these public settings. And it would become disruptive within the service and divisive within the people that were gathered together. And so these women, they'd throw off these coverings saying, well, I'm not going to be subservient to any man. And so Paul has to lay it out that, uh, that they understand what the proper role is. Now, he goes to the extreme in verse 6, and he says, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off, But if it is disgraceful for the woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then let her cover her head. That's sarcasm. Why would a woman in these times have their head shaved? It wasn't because it was cool. It was because she was disgraced. She was disgraced. They would shave her head as an act of disgrace, an act of of sin. And what, what Paul is saying is, this woman that is taking her covering off, she might as well shave her head because it's an act of shame. Women, I know this never happens. But have you ever seen somebody that, a woman that was just actually shameless? And you looked at her and you went, wow. That's, that's not good. Or guys, you look at, you look at a woman and you go, wow. How do you get there? How do you get to that place? Well, it all comes down to one thing. Loving self more than loving the other. Entitlement. What does do mean? More than worshiping God. In the corporate setting and in the context, he's talking about corporate setting. What is the most important thing in the corporate setting? Worshiping God. Not being seen. We look at that and and understanding that we come to God with humility and grace. 
within us. Not in rebellion. That, and, and so women were allowed to pray. They were allowed to prophesy. They were encouraged to. We know that Philip's daughters were prophetesses. He says, when you do it, just do it humbly. Do it in a way that doesn't draw attention to you, but focuses on the message. One of the other thoughts that I was reading today about this was that a woman also in the context of this Near Eastern culture, a woman was to cover her head so that she wouldn't be a distraction to the men that were in the room too. In other words, just go ahead and submit yourself just to your husband. Let everybody know that you're submitting to just your husband. So you're not a distraction and they don't think you're available. So the whole structure was designed, as Paul was corrected and bringing back into this place, of, of really being focused on worship. Now on the other hand, we take a look at verse 7. He says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image of the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Within this. So men were not to cover their head. They were to pray uncovered within this. Why? Because in the pagan culture, all the priests were covering their head. But you think about something else. The covering is a separation. What did Jesus, when Jesus died, what happened in the temple? What, what was split? The veil was removed. Right? And so within that, when a man covers his head in the culture, it was kind of like, well, now there's a separation between me and God. Now, in Israel today, when we go to Israel, we go to the Wailing Wall, guess what you have to wear? You have to wear a head covering. You have to wear a yarmulke or a baseball cap. I always carry a baseball cap because I'm not real big on like that donut that sits on top of your head. So baseball caps work, right? But if you go to the Wailing Wall, you have to wear one. Why? Because to the Jews, the veil is what? Still intact. There's still this separation that's within this. But Paul is writing to the men, no, there is no veil. You need to worship in unveiled worship. Men, when you come before God, you are worshiping in an unveiled worship. And then also understand, you are the high priest of your home. It is your job to worship in an unveiled way and to nurture and care for your wife within Worship itself, to be able to be in that place. Paul gives a parallel account in his third letter it to, to Corinthians. It's actually 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 to 14. It says this, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of the glory that was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this day, they were reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed from, by Christ. Men, when you come to worship, you need to worship in a manner that is unveiled before God. Focused. Because you are the high priest of the home. You are the one that connects with the heart of God and you usher in the sacred presence into your own. Men, do you realize that you have the capacity, the capacity to bring in the sacred presence into your house and lead your home in worship? 
And so Paul uses this, this example of covering because of the context of the time. He says, men, don't do that. The husband was the first in order of creation. And he's to honor that place of first in order in worship. And the woman is second in order of creation. And she's to be honored in her place. Paul's reaching back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. And putting these distinctions in creation. He said this in verse 8, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Talking about that helpmate that is there. The uniqueness, the image bearers. We are the image bearers. Women, you are image bearers of God just like men. And when we come to worship, we've got to understand that that is the place that we, that we come to and we are honoring Him in our place, in our uniqueness. Men, do you understand that, that your wife and that women are unique and special? They have the capacity to do things and to be things that you never will be able to do. They have a, a level of empathy that, that is beyond our comprehension. Understanding, long-suffering, patient, kind. How do I know that? They're married to you. And, and, and we look at that. Women are unique and special. We're going to celebrate moms and women on Sunday in a special way because they are special. And within this, all, all of us are all image bearers in our own uniqueness. Within this. And so we, he goes on, and he says, Therefore the woman ought to have the symbol of authority overhead with, within this, to be able to be in that place. Because of the angels. Now, why because of the angels in verse 10? Have you ever looked at that and thought, well, why because of the angels? What does Paul mean? Here's something that is the truth. Do you know angels are learning from you? Number one job of angels is what? Worshiping God. And they watch how God engages with mankind and how mankind engages with God. And they watch you worship. And they learn about worship. And so the angels are watching and they watch the, the way that the women would worship with their heads covered and the men worship with their heads uncovered and they would see, the, they would see their, their external because angels can't see inside, they can't see the heart, but they can see that heart. Of and then they're looking at that object that God loves so much and they are learning. What are you teaching the angels about worship when you make worship all about you? They're learning what kind of a selfish creature we really are. But when we worship in spirit and in truth, the angels worship with us. Do you realize when we get to heaven and we're before the throne of God and we are worshiping, we will be worshiping with whom? Myriads and myriads of angels. That is going to be a celebration that is unbelievable. And so the angels are watching us as we willfully self-control ourselves in worship to honor God, which is the standard by which they worship. What does this all mean? Men, we are to bring glory to God. Worship in an unveiled way. Women, you are to bring glory to God. 
in the way that you have been created. How were they created? Verses 11 to 16. However, in the Lord, notice, in the Lord, however, that's a change. However, in the Lord, so here's the standard, neither is woman independent of man nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray with God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. So, as Paul finishes his section, what is he saying? Guess what? Men, you need women. Women, you need men. Is that a truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. Think what it would be like, men, if there were no women in the world or ever created. Guess what? You wouldn't be here. Procreation requires women. Women. Procreation requires men. God saw that. He knew it. And it was His standard within this. And so in the Lord, He takes what is in creation and puts it into a spiritual context. In the Lord. Men and women in the Lord are interdependent upon each other. We need each other. For the body of Christ to be whole. Not separate. And again, Paul's words are, are, are not meant to be abusive, but qualitative. That we need each other within this. Our biological structure says that you're either a man or you're a woman. From when? From birth. Why? Because that's God's design. And by God's design, we are fit together for the purpose of fellowship, for unity, for glorifying God. And within this, Paul says, without apology, there is no gender differentiation. You're either man or you're woman. That's the way that, that God had established it. Different but equal in the Lord. Interdependent. And so Paul goes on and he says, judge for yourselves, verse 13. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head covered? So you say, well, Carrie, what does that mean? That means, Paul says, look, at here's the standard. You judge for yourself. Look at it biblically. What does God say about keeping worship in order? Is he really talking about head covering? No, he's talking about priority in worship. He's really talking about the heart. He's talking about a husband and wife coming together as one, interdependent upon each other, worshiping God together without division. Imagine what it would be like if every family was led by a husband and wife that were both loving God and worshiping God without division. Unique in their differences but unified in their heart towards God. Imagine what it would be like, the homes and the families and the children and the modeling that would go on, the divorce rate would crash 
and the, and the families would grow stronger. And Paul says, judge for yourselves based on the very fact of creation. What God says, what is the biblical worldview about worship? Come together as one and worship God together as one. And if that means that, women, you need to be in this place of saying to your husband, yes, I am trusting in you to lead me. And men are saying, yes, I want to lead you, but I also need to, to be in that place where I am unveiled in worshiping God, then that's where we need to be, isn't it? That's where we need to be. So, it, women, you judge for yourself. Why? Why does he say that? Paul is saying, husbands, do not tell your wives to submit. Do not force them. Judge for yourself, women. And know how you can come into that place. And, and men, you judge what you need to do. Then he goes on to this little thing about hair. And I'm not quite sure why he went there, other than the fact he was talking about natural order. Paul says this, What is the natural order for men? Short hair. What is the natural order for women? Long hair. Why would he bring that? He would bring that because in Corinth at the time, because of the corruption, because of the sexual immorality, transgenderism and bisexual behavior was running rampant. You think it's happening now. It was happening back then. And what Paul was saying is this. This is how you can glorify God. Be who God created you to be. Let the outward adornment reflect you as you were created. And so men, leave your hair short. Women, leave your hair long. Why? Because those are the natural, common sense distinctions that should be part of the community within that. Now, is that applicable today? So if you're a woman and you have your hair cut short, is Paul, is Paul against you? No, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, live the way that God has biologically created you based on the distinctions that's part of who you are in your role and your place. It, it's not the outward. It's the inward. It's the heart that is the focus. He is not setting a law, but he, but he wants us to follow that. And how do I know that? Because look at verse 16. Verse 16, he brings it all into summary. He says, but if one is inclined to be contentious. Oh, now we got the, the, the root of it. We have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. In other words, what is normative for the worship of the corporate church together? When we think about somebody that wants to step out outside of their, their divinely created role, why are they doing it? Why do you want to step out of your divinely created role? Because you're either fighting against God or you're fighting against somebody else. We should submit to God and say, God, this is, I am who I am. Paul would go on and he said, look, the, the church of Corinth... What you're trying to do is you're trying to be that one-off church. He says, nor of all the other churches. Here's the other thing that Paul was struggling with, with this church. This church was trying to be the progressive church, to use a modern-day phrase. 
They were trying to be all-inclusive and the progressive church. And Paul says, you know how you're wrong? Because if you're the only one doing it, and it doesn't line up biblically, you probably you need to check yourself. It's not common to the other churches that is there. And so he, he's checking them. And so then he moves on to the next thing that, that they really were struggling with in their worship practice, and that was the tradition. As I said, traditions aren't bad. Traditions are good. The tradition of the practicing of the Lord's Supper. And when we think about the Lord's Supper, this table, what is the tradition of the practicing of the Lord's Supper? It's remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. The night before Jesus died, he gave the Lord's Supper to his disciples. That's why it's called the Lord's Supper. He gave the bread and the cup. He says, this represents my body and my, my blood that is shed for you. And he says, as often as you do this, remember me. It was tradition that the church would do this. In fact, the early church would do it every week on Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday, the Lord's Day, they would do communion. That was their tradition. Our tradition is we do it the first Sunday of the month. I know churches that only do it twice a year. That's their tradition. Is there a regimented time? No, there isn't. But when you do it, you've got to do it right. You've got to do it according to the standard. The problem is the church of Corinth had corrupted this practice and this tradition. How did they corrupt it in practice? They took Greco-Roman dining style... And they inserted it into the gathering of the Lord's Supper. Now remember I told you, they didn't gather like we do in a large church setting. They would get together at home. So what they would do is they would have a meal. And during the meal, and during their Bible study, like a home group, then they would have the Lord's Supper. But they corrupted it because of the way that they were doing it. And that corruption had infected the behavior of the Lord's Supper. And so in verses 17 to 22, he says this, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, notice, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear the divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and then the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which you eat or drink? And do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So what was happening was these churches would get together in what was called fellowship meals. They would have their meal, and then they would have the Lord's Supper. And yet Paul says these meals or these gatherings are worthless. Greco-Roman eating was, they would have a dining style. It was called the first and the second table. Kind of like your first and seconds, right? So the rich would have these large houses, and they would all come in, and they would have their first. But the working class weren't off work yet, so then they would come, and guess what they would get? The seconds or the leftovers, or they didn't get anything at all. And what were they worried about? They worried about getting theirs. Have you ever been to a potluck, and you watch the people in the first in line, and then you happen to be the one in the last in line? 
The first in line invariably does this, and that's why we always let the youth go last. Because they will mound their plate as high as they can. Right? And if you're last, you might get a wing. Well, that was what was going on in what they were calling their fellowship meals or their fellowship. And so, really, he says, don't call it. If you're hungry, eat at home. And then they started drinking during these things. And they were getting drunk during them. Now, can you imagine coming to a home fellowship and and all the food's gone and everybody's just ripped? And they try to do a Bible study and then they say, yeah, let's do communion. That's what he says. This is I can't commend you for that, Paul says. Not only that, but they had deteriorated to places of gatherings of gossip and division within that. In these home fellowships. He's hearing reports and he believes them. Where the haves got it and the have-nots don't. And so the church of Corinth had become a two-class party church. The rich and the poor within that. And the factions that are there. And basically he says, don't be part of it. It's not acceptable. When you meet together, don't meet together under the pretense of worship. Why? Because you're making it all about you. And so he challenges them and he says, this is worthless. They have become self-indulgent in these gatherings. So what does Paul do? He reiterates what the Lord's Supper really is. He goes back to the basics. We're going to have communion here tonight. We need to be able to come to this table in a manner that is worthy of the tradition of the table, of what the elements represent. Jesus is the one that established this. Verses 23 to 26 says, For I received, Paul speaking, from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after supper and saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a sacred event, a sacred ritual that proclaims the most important thing in our spiritual life, our transformation. We do this, but we should do this with the right heart. If if you're hungry, I can tell you this, that little bit of cracker and that little bit of grape juice is not going to fill you up. It's not a snack. It's an act of worship within this. The Lord's Supper is a command of celebration for everybody. The Lord's Supper is given to us with thankfulness and joy. When you take this, you should be overjoyed. You realize that that your sins have been forgiven. That you stand before a holy God, penalty paid because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It is with great thanksgiving and great joy that the bread that you hold represents the body, 
the body of your Savior that hung on that cross, that took the full weight and wrath of God upon Himself, that you'll never face, ever. That cup represents the precious blood of Jesus. We say it so many times, we sing it so many times, that perhaps it's lost its meaning. What does it mean to be forgiven? And it's to be a repetitive act. Why? Because we constantly need to be reminded of how precious our salvation is. How great that sacrifice is. Every time we take it. We need to examine ourselves to make sure that we're ready to take it. And if we can't take the communion elements out of the celebration, joyful heart, remembering the body, remembering the blood, remembering that I'm doing this until Jesus... If I can't do this with the proper attitude, I should not do it at all. The ritual has no purpose unless it transforms the heart and comes from the heart because it's an act of worship. And so Paul warns this group against the condemnation that was happening to them because they were doing it the wrong way. Verses 27 to 34, he says this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if, notice if, conditional clause, he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if, conditional clause, we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange, rearrange when I come. So what does Paul say? Before you come to this table, check your heart. Check your heart. Before you come to that table, make sure that you are coming as an act of worship. It was such that the church of Corinth, people in the church were getting sick and dying. Why? Because they were making a mockery of the table. You're saying, well, Carrie, you mean God was actually killing people because they were not taking communion correctly? Apparently so. Did God do that historically in Old Testament? Yes, He did. We serve a holy God. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. The sin that separates us from God was paid for by Jesus. The greatest sacrifice ever. The Son of God. And to make a mockery of that in a pretense of worship is an abomination before a holy God. That's powerful. 
What would keep me from coming to this table? One, if you don't believe in God, this table's not for you. You've got, you got to have forgiveness of sins in order to celebrate forgiveness of sins. You say, well, how do I do that? You ask. And you say, God, please forgive me of all of my sins. I realize you are a holy God and I am a sinful person and my sin separates me from you. But I believe that Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin. Will you forgive me and wash me? Make me whole. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. And then our lives represent that as an act of worship. An ongoing act of worship. I'll end with this and the worship team can come up and we'll have this time of meditation and worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, Paul would write this concerning the Lord's Supper. Is it not the cup of blessing which with we bless a sharing the blood of Christ? And the answer is yes. Is it not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ? And the answer is yes. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. This table reminds us of the single Savior that saved all of us. And when we partake of all of the elements, we are signifying that we are one body. The church of Corinth was divided and divisive. That's why they had a problem. Maybe we need to check our hearts tonight. And I would encourage you to do so. As I said earlier, this table is open to anybody that names the name of Christ as Lord and Savior. If there is an offense or an issue that you have with somebody, that needs to be taken care of. Before you can come, and you can be one, you have to ask for forgiveness from that person. You've got to ask for forgiveness, God, in order to take the one bread and be one. And when you're ready, you'll be able to come up, take the cup, take the bread. You can return to your seat. And as Paul said, wait till everybody is served. Let me pray. God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we can come to this place and worship you. We can celebrate the bread and the cup. That reminds us, Lord Jesus, of that sacrifice. And may this be a true act of worship as we honor you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Darkness, your loving kindness 
Every chain of salvation. 
As we hold the bread up, let's consider what it really means. One bread, one body, one faith. We are united together in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but everything that He has done. He sacrificed Himself on our behalf to bring us to Himself. This bread represents His body that was tortured, humbled, hung on a cross. That wasn't the worst of it. Paul would write, He became sin who knew no sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. You are covered by the righteousness of Christ. You stand right now before a holy God, blameless, all because of what Jesus did. This bread reminds us of that. God, we thank you for this bread. We ask that you would bless it to us, more than just the blessing of the bread, but the blessing of the memory of what this bread means. That we stand without fear, without guilt, without shame. We thank you for all this bread, all that this bread means. In Jesus' name. Let's all take it together. As we hold the cup up, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus. In our minds, we think that we can picture what that might look like, but Isaiah says that looking upon him, he was beaten to a point that he didn't look like a man. The blood that flowed from his wrists and his feet, from his brow, from the, cor the crown of thorns, and eventually, the piercing in his side. The shedding of blood that once and for all removes our sins. The perfect sacrifice. You're clean. And free. Free from sin, from guilt, from shame. What washes away our sins? Only the blood of Jesus. We thank you for this cup and all that it represents. As we take this cup, we do so to honor you. We praise you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all take it together. Thank you, Lord.
in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.